Life is unfair. Welcome to This Might Be a Podcast. Before we get started, we've got a voicemail from Spencer about the Erase episode. Hello, this is Spencer. I just listened to the episode about the song Erase, and uh, I had to go ahead and listen to the song another couple more times before I called and said what I think about it. Uh, really, I'm, I'm just super fascinated by the lyrics. I really, really, really want to know what their writing process is like in general, um, but also just for specific songs. Like, did Linnell just think, I'm going to write a song about the idea of erasing things or getting rid of things. Um, but then wh- how, how do you write a song about that? What, what I just, I, I'm not a lyricist. I'm not a music composer, so I don't know what's involved in that, but I just want to know what's going on in their brains. Uh, and this is a perfect example of getting into that. All right. That's it. Talk to you later. Bye. Thanks a lot for calling in Spencer. If you would like to leave us a voicemail, the number is, Two two four eight zero one two nine three zero, and let's start the show. I can hear you by They Might Be Giants, made at the Edison Laboratory. I can hear you, just barely hear you. I can just barely. Welcome to This Might Be a Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Simpson, and here, once again, I have friends Nikolai to talk about the song I Can Hear You off of They Might Be Giants 1996 album Factory Showroom. I'm buzzing you in Hey, hey, thanks for being on again Uh, So, if people, well, people should go and listen to the episode you were on I Am Not Your Broom To hear a little bit about your background as a musician uh, How you got into They Might Be Giants That is all on that episode, so we can kind of skip ahead But I guess... People should just know that you play accordion and keyboards professionally in the Hold Steady. Uh, you do solo stuff, uh, World Inferno. Is there anything? Is there anything else? Well, there's Guignol, which is the the sort of Balkan jazz band. Um, ah, I was in Against Me for for the the better part of a year. Oh yeah, Iron Gun style. Yeah. Um, Antisocial Music, which is the sort of new new classical chamber music collective. Um, yeah. Those so are the... so basically, you're really lazy and you just kind of sit around. And... <laughs> I mean, I've, I've slowed down in the last couple of years because of the kids, but, you know, I try to keep the... Sure. I can manage about one, one big project at a time these days instead of... Instead of several. Man, yeah, like I told you last time, the, the, the Punk News Top 100 of the aughts... 2000 to 2009, first decade of the aughts is uh, going to be posting pretty soon, and Boys and Girls was third on there. I know 
couple of the other records placed just out of the 100 on the cumulative list. But yeah, the the accordion the accordion maybe call is called more for in the ballads, like Hold City ballads, right? Tends to be yeah, where I played it on. What did I play it on? I played it on Citrus on Boys and Girls and on Lord I'm Discouraged on yeah. Stay Positive. And you know what? I, honestly, I played mostly accordion on, when we would do like. Because when we're because when you're putting on a record, you do the you're on tour and you do all these promotional things like acoustic in stores or like radio you know radio appearances right. and stuff like that. And that's mostly what I would drag the accordion around before, and I would do like use that to recreate the the piano parts with an acoustic guitar and yeah. Craig, you know. So I play like one for the cutters on accordion and stuff like that. Yeah, that for that it's super convenient. But for to bring it to these shows where we're going to play, you know, maximum one of those songs, if not zero of those songs, it just doesn't make sense. Sure. Yeah, you got a massive PA system on a big stage. You line in the keyboards and there you go. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, John Linnell does that a lot whenever they do duo stuff. Like they do, they call it the quiet storm section of their sets when they do... Like the full band takes a, a break sure. and the two Johns do stuff. He does a lot more accordion or when they do in stores and stuff, you'll see. He's always mixing it up. Like he'll do, like I'm finding that with, with uh, all through all eras where you'll be like, oh, that's a synth song on the record. But then you'll see him like live on Conan or something and he's doing it on accordion. Yeah. He I mean, likes it, to mix it up for himself too, I think. It's a very versatile instrument. Yeah. So let's get right into the song then. Um, I don't think we need much more filler on this one. We didn't need filler on the last one either. It went incredibly long, um, but was awesome. So, well, why did you why did you pick this song? Let's just start there. Why did you pick "I Can Hear You"? It's one of the ones that I think is. I mean, the it's it's it, the concision of the songwriting is perfect, right? Like. It's the yeah. It's a it's a it's it's very concise. Well, it, it's concise, but it also matches content with form, right? Like yeah, it's, it's obviously yeah, exactly. It's written for the um, you know to quote one of the other songs on the record. <laughs> it's you know it's written for for the for the project, right? It's they're they're recording at this at the Edison Laboratories. It's going to sound like what it's going to sound like an old wax cylinder, and. Each of the each of the verses is a quote from is a uh, is a situation in which you would also run up against scratchy audio, right? The, yeah, uh, which I yeah, yeah, which I feel like the younger generation fans getting into them might not even be familiar with half of these things. Like, obviously, drive through for fast food is always going to be. You know, a thing where it's going to sound a little crackly, but it used to sound a lot worse. Anyone who lives in an apartment building in a city knows about the the, the busted buzzer. Right, right. Um, I mean, calling from the plane, nobody, maybe not so much. No, 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 nobody knows that. And alarms on cars don't talk to you anymore, like Viper. <laughs> that one might be the most confusing i think to people this car is protected by viper because that's an exact quote from what the thing would say you know if you tried to you know if you bumped into a car i you know i remember that like getting out of my car and maybe not even bumping i remember being super sensitive someone else's car would just go off i i I remember that happening a couple of times when that was the big new uh car alarm 
system in the in the late 90s. Well, and for the younger listeners, the advertisement was ubiquitous on cable, right? Yeah, I feel like I should... I'm, I, I'm going to find a clip of the commercial. I'll drop that in here. <laughs> Viper arm. Protected by Viper. Stand back. <laughs> Viper. No one dares come close. Let me tie that in, actually. So, sure. Protected by Viper, the Viper car alarm system was invented by um, the, the the company that that marketed it was was owned by Daryl Issa, who went on to become a congressman for many years from Southern California, uh-huh. um, and uh-huh. became to his highest prominence, I guess, as the head of the oversight committee during the Obama years. Um, <laughs> wow. I had no idea. Yeah, that's how he made his millions before he, you know, he made however many hundreds of million dollars on Protected by Viper, and that is his voice. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Step away from the car. This car is protected by Viper. Wow. That's nice. I met him a couple years ago. Um, (laughs) You're just full of surprises. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is, I figured we should get into this. Um, Yeah. I met Daryl Issa because I was part of a lobbying group that went down to, to, to lobby Congress on behalf of a bill called the Fair Play, Fair Pay Act, uh-huh. which was about getting um, royalties for performers on, um, on terrestrial radio. Right. And it was an interesting... What year abouts are we talking? This was... Let me look, because I, uh, I wrote about it for Punk News, actually. It was three years ago, according to this. Wait, you did? Oh my yeah. god! Okay, you can, I'm you searching can for dial it. that up. Yeah, I'm um, looking for it. <laughs> I wrote an op-ed about it. Um, anyway, it's an interesting um, group of Congress people who are who are uh, a legitimately bipartisan group of Congress people who are interested in royalties and copyright and uh, intellectual mm-hmm. property. Yeah. Um, including ISA because he was an inventor, right? So he has an interest in intellectual property. Uh, Marsha Blackburn, who's the Trumpist, I think she might be, an, I guess she's now a senator from, from Tennessee, but because at the time she represented Nashville, which is songwriters, right? Um, yeah. In a, mm-hmm. a, and, and then people like Al Franken, who comes from creative industry, so he's also interested in, in copyright and intellectual property and royalties. Um, anyway, Isa was part of that, was part of that crew, um, that we met with and did a press conference with, with Isa and Blackburn and, and some other people. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah, so I just found the article. Yeah, I believe that bill eventually passed. Um, I think so, years, yeah. A couple of years later. Yeah, we got, okay, so three years ago, editorial, Franz Nicolay on lobbying Congress and why copyright law needs to change. And it has a picture of you looking very official. You got a suit, you got two, you, you're flanked by a couple of flags. That's in the hearing you're, room, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting at the big old desk with the with the little microphone. That's uh, I, I'm 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 sad that it doesn't have. Uh, they didn't make you a little thing with your name on it. I don't think they'd usually do that for the the. But but like the, you can tell, there's a little thing in front of you that looks like it would hold the nameplate of like whoever happened to be sitting, like whoever. Right. 
official senator, congressperson, or whatever. No, it yeah, wasn't this like is that. Great. I do remember reading this at the time, but three years ago, my memory is horrible. Three years ago, I can't remember. Three days ago. Yeah. We met with, um, whose offices did I go to? I went to, there was a, a, a woman who was already, whose name I don't remember, who was already on board with it. I distinctly remember meet, meeting Louis Gohmert, who was one of the wingnut right-wing Texas Congress people. Uh, uh-huh. and, and at the time, he was laughing about, about Trump because it was, you know, it, it was <laughs> in the period at which it seemed like that wasn't going to happen. Oh. Yeah. Back when we could yeah, laugh I'd... about it. So Yeah, right. Uh, I just want to point out the first, <laughs> the, the, com- the very first comment on, on this article is by <laughs> a guy who doesn't seem to be around the site anymore or has changed his uh, avatar. The name... <laughs> First article is by a guy who goes by the name of Pube. <laughs> it says, they're playing your songs on the radio, dude. Be happy. Be thankful. Should have picked another profession if you want to make money, you mustachioed rube. <laughs> oh, my God. And then, and then, and then responding times. to that, all people, everyone else is on your side except for this person. So then Bastard Squad, who's still around, says, someone should reload the point he was making and shoot you in the face with it. And then John, who's the editor that, that posted this for you, he's still going strong with us. I can never understand why some people think artists shouldn't be able to make money off of their work. To paraphrase, to paraphrase a great Jesse Michaels quote, would you rather have artists using their skills to write songs or flip cheeseburgers at McDonald's? And then someone says, I'd rather they flip cheeseburgers. <laughs> Punk News comment sections. Oh, I, I just had to get that one in there because uh, for, for listeners, being that this is a Punk News podcast, some people oh, right. may remember that guy, Pube. He's notorious for, uh, he was notorious for posting just the most stupid shit. Uh, at least it wasn't the anonymous days of Punk News because that was like the Wild West. So, okay, so that, that's, that was an interesting little tangent about... Uh, one of the verses of this song. See, we re- we really get into the thick of it here. That that was a five minute tangent on one of the verses of a song that's less than two minutes long. <laughs> right. Well, I was thinking that's about great. like what <laughs> what are my personal connections to this song? I rec- I used to record at the su- at the. It said I read somewhere that this record was done at Dubway, which was like the first studio in in New York that I did a bunch of recording at. So that was cool to see. Nice, nice. And and then right. I happen I know the guy who who um, who plays tuba on this song. Yeah. Who happens to be? <laughs> of course you do. Well, I mean, there's not that many tuba players in New York, but uh, but he's one of the he's one of the first call guys. He happens to be one of the least most unpleasant people that I've ever met in music. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh, honestly, boy. and you would think so, that, Ron Ron Caswell. Yeah. You would think that, like, you know, there's not enough, there's not enough tuba work to be a, to be a, a total jerk and still get a, a lot, a, a, a giant chunk of it. But, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> but apparently, it's true. Well, I, I guess on the other side of that, you could say, "Well, I'm I'm so good, and there's not very many tuba players, so you gotta hire me." Uh, maybe he he had an ego. That Was it an ego or just like unpleasant? Both. That is sort of his vibe. <laughs> that is sort of his vibe. Yeah. <laughs> Who else are you gonna get? Well, I recommend John Altieri. He's a totally sweet dude. He's an awesome tuba player. Anyone who's listening who needs a tuba well, in New York, John Altieri and, and is is your guy. Let's look at this. I was planning on playing this and later, Joe but Axley. let's look at this I clip. Talk about Joe Exley too. <laughs> okay, let's look at this clip of them playing on the Daily Show. 
So I sent you this email here. They played on the because I want you to confirm if this is the guy playing tuba on this uh, clip. Uh, the MIP Giants basically were the house band for the special episode in 1999, the Daily Show Greatest Millennium Special. And the song doesn't happen. It's got like uh, almost five minutes of video. Someone just kind of cut all the little They Might Be Giants sections together. So mm-hmm. they're kind of coming in from the commercials, playing out to the commercials. And then they play I Can Hear You uh, with the Edison recorder in front of Flansburg as he's singing. Um, so go ahead. You skip to 255 there, and I'll drop that clip in for people. To wrap it and the millennium up. They Might Be Giants will record a song on the first device to ever capture the human voice, an original wax cylinder from the Edison Laboratories. Thank you very much, and we'll see you again in a thousand years. (laughs) Gentlemen. I Can Hear You, played by They Might Be Giants for The Daily Show's Greatest Millennium. I can hear you, just barely hear you. I can just barely hear you. is a warning step away from the car this car is protected by viper guess where i am calling from the place i'll call you when i get there i don't know i don't recognize him but i didn't know him till a couple years after this could have been some hard living in between. <laughs> yeah, so they play it pretty much just like on the record. You've got um, Dan Miller, their lead guitarist, playing uh, well, it's a dobro, I guess. It's yeah. a, it's an acoustic that's got the, the steel um, circular part of the resonator. Uh, then you got the tuba. you got Linnell on accordion, of course. You've got a guy operating the wax cylinder, and he's looking very carefully at it. You got the big cones, uh, and, and then and somebody on stro- stro violin. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't know who that is. There's no violin on the record, on the recording. No, but that's one of those. That's uh, that's also sort of outdated amplification technology. That sort of um, visually. It's nice to have the so the stro violin is the one with with the with the metal horn on it that was in the yeah. amplification days was for 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 making it louder and sort of fits the concept to have one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I I think uh, another cool thing about them doing it so they recorded it without electricity because the wax cylinder didn't need electricity and then they made sure to use all acoustic instruments. Right, uh, you got the accordion, the tuba, the acoustic guitar, uh, and acoustic bass on the the recording which is seems to be kind of hidden behind the tube i think on the recording yeah it's weird to have uh, both i don't know why that why they would have made that choice yeah actually just looking at it now i didn't even realize there was acoustic bass in there um but it's by graham mabby or maybe i i haven't confirmed about how to say his last name m-a-b-y uh but he played on a bunch of he played on john henry in factory showroom so he okay. plays the acoustic bass on that as well he's their guy the, he was their guy at the time yeah not anymore. Uh, he left pretty shortly after this, uh, but yeah, the whole um, the whole annoyed at being overshadowed by the tuba. 
It's too yeah. much of a blow to his ego to survive in the band. <laughs> well, he has a lot of great parts. I mean, like the bass part, like the the slap bass on like snail shell and stuff. He he he's a great bass player. I love Danny Weinkoff, but uh, he he wrote some good parts for those albums he was on. Graham. Uh, so, do you want to talk a little bit more about the the wax cylinder recorders and phonographs, the Edison stuff? I mean, I'm no particular expert on it. It's you know, it's, it's well, me neither. Yeah. For people who don't know, it's it's one of these very early acoustic recording technologies in which there's a rotating cylinder with wax on it um, and a needle into the wax and a big horn that's collecting the the, the sound waves and the, the the needle sort of to put it very um, to, to dumb it down, essentially scratches into the wax, and then that, and that's how the recording gets made. Um, and so it sounds like the same system was used to play it back as to record it. Because it's saying, uh, I'm looking just right. looking on the Wikipedia. Yeah. yeah so the, the cylinder machines of the late 1800s were sold with recording attachments. So basically, you'd buy it to listen to stuff, but you could also record at home. So home recording. I mean, this is like the first garage band. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The first uh, four track, except it's just one track. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and you know, obviously, it's it's fragile, and there aren't many that survive, and so the the recordings that exist are you know even scratchier than this. But there's all these kinds of sort of digital rejuvenation um, yeah. processes uh, these days and, to to take them and sort of clean them up and and and, and make them available digitally. So originally they were even more fragile. Uh, originally they would they were wrapped in a thin sheet of tin foil. Okay. And and you'd hand crank it, but the tin foil. So well, let me just read it here. It'd say it better than me. Tin foil was not a practical recording medium for either commercial or artistic <laughs> purposes, and the crude hand cranked phonograph was the only only marketed as a novelty to little or no profit. Uh, Edison moved on to developing. The incandescent light and the next improvements to sound recording. So he kind of moved on from there, and then eventually it uh, ended up with the the wax stuff. Yeah. So se- after seven years of research, after the tin foil stuff, which was 1877, uh, research and experimentation at their Volta laboratory, Charles Sumner Taintner, Alexander Graham Bell, and uh, Chinchester Bell introduced wax as the recording medium and engraving, rather than indenting on the the tin. Yeah. yeah, I mean, and and you can these these things are a little easier to, um, in a way, to access these days because you know people can do these these scan these like physical scans of uh, instead of having to of the object instead of having to replay them and then and then assemble them digitally in a computer. Mm. Um, so even ones that are that are really damaged or broken, you can you can scan them and, and try to piece it together. Um, oh, nice! I mean, yeah, I don't know very much about that. I bet. <laughs> but the but the basic premise is the same as as a vinyl record. You know, it's inscribing the yeah, inscribing the vibrations into a into a into a soft medium. Yeah, my my kids are fascinated by that stuff. Yeah, yeah, my my students are fascinated by that stuff. I mean, they're fascinated by a CD. You're like. Oh well, a laser scans the the digital encoder, and they're like a laser. Whoa! And I'm like, yeah, you can't see it. You can't like stick your face in there and look at the laser. <laughs> but the record, I've got a record player, a little portable, because Victrola, they're making stuff with the Victrola name. I'm not sure who owns it, but 
Um, and I bought this for 75 bucks, this little portable six in one. It's got the new stuff, the Bluetooth, the aux in, but it's also got a CD player, cassette, and a record player. All in this little box that's barely the size of like a stereo receiver. It's a little bigger than that. And kids love watching the record go around. They're like, but how does it? I'm like, it's in the grooves. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense to, 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 to have a physical object that you put on and you put the needle where you want to play. And, and that is the song. Like, that makes sense to kids, I think. Yeah, yeah, they do like than... they 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 think it's really cool. Yeah, and like looking the needle at the needle, and then I'll also show them like because kids are mostly familiar with records. Like even though vinyl's making a comeback, the average Joe does not own a record player. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're familiar with like on TV, like DJs, you know, two turntables and record scratching and all that stuff uh, is is cool to them. So I'll put on like some shitty old record that's already scratched, and it's not good for the needle. But I'll just show a little bit of them, just go. <laughs> <laughs> they think it's yeah. the coolest thing. <laughs> but also, if you put like, on the record and and turn off the speakers and the, the the idea that they can put their ear up and and actually still hear the you know yeah the, the music very quietly. Yeah, yeah. The the current the little thing that I have at school can't do that. It just you know shuts yeah. it shuts it all down. But but yeah, that is really cool. Like it is a lot more practical. Like it makes sense. Yeah, your the visual and the audio makes sense. You can see it actually happening. Whereas like even on a CD, you know, you stick it in there and you close the thing. You can't see what's going on. And yeah, it's, and di- to explain, it's digital like, anyway. To explain the conversion of audio into digital is just it, it's <laughs> too complicated for elementary school kids exactly or right. me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, the the Edison the National Park Service actually has a pretty cool site uh, if people want to go check it out the nps.gov uh, but if you search for the Edison um, Thomas Edison the National Historic Park in New Jersey and now I really want to go here there's a, a a link right on there to the origins of sound recording and it has stuff about that because it's related uh, so that's pretty cool people can go check that out um, next time I get to the East Coast I definitely need to go there. Uh, so, also, did you get a chance to read that AV Music uh, article I sent you? Just just a few years ago, in 2014, they did a write-up, the Hear This column. Uh, the AV Club writers sing their praises of a song they know well, some inspired by a weekly theme or not. Uh, and so this guy, the writer's Eric Adams, he picked I Can Hear You. And he talks about all the wax cylinder stuff. Did you get a chance to look at that? I know I only sent it to you a little I bit. I looked at before. it. I don't know that there's. That's, he's describing the, the song, right? Yeah, yeah. I just think it's cool that like so many years later. I mean, it's not just us talking about it, but something like AV is going to cover, you know, this one song from 1996 that they might be giants hit. I mean, it's a very interesting song. Like I said, I mean, I, I think just as a from as a piece of songwriting craft to to say, okay, we're going to do this inter- this interesting thing from a technical point of view. Let's reflect that in the song and make the technical limitations of the song um, act, turn them into a benefit for the for the lyrics is is pretty remarkable. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think it's funny when I go to the interpretations tab on the wiki. It's funny that there are even our interpretations because this one. I think is one of the more straightforward. straightforward. Yeah. yeah. I mean, other than like James K. Pollock, where it's like, you know, we're singing about a guy. Uh, this one's pretty straightforward. Like an overly rosy view of Pollock. 
<laughs> well, the, I, I think the very end, what they tag on at the end is a uh, few have mourned the passing of James K. Polk. I mean, they right, basically but that say could be he's read, that a That could dick. be read as like unfair uh, both ways. That could be read I in guess. the context of the song. is like, here's this guy who's unfairly forgotten who accomplished all this <laughs> well, stuff. It's like, well, yeah. Have you ever seen him? Well, have you ever seen him play it live? No, not that I'm conscious of. Um, I only saw them once and it was 20 years ago. Oh, okay. So then, yeah, Probably maybe. <laughs> but years ago. They may have played it for all I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so we t- well, we talk about the verbs in the episode, how he sees the whole Southwest from Mexico, mm-hmm. not like he bargained with and fairly traded, you know, like it, right, it, 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 the, it, the yeah. verbs kind of hint at it. But when they do it live, uh, when I saw them last spring, uh, they did tip- their song Tippecanoe and Tyler 2, and followed by this one, so two presidential songs. And basically, they kind of talked about how William Henry Harrison was an asshole and an idiot. He didn't wear his coat to his inauguration, ended up getting pneumonia and dying. And then Pollock, they're basically like, this song, yeah, they're basically like, this song's about a huge asshole. And then they play the song. Uh-huh, got it. <laughs> so just to be clear. Perhaps they were too subtle. <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. That, that's that's what the interpretation stamp is for. But yeah, I'm not even going to read any of these because it's like, it's about stuff that's hard to hear, and it's on literally recorded on a scratchy service. Um, but apparently, like in the trivia, um, this I did not know, um, that this was inspired by – the wax cylinder recording method was inspired by Chris Butler of The Waitresses who worked the drum machine on the Wiggle Diskette. One of the very first things that They Might Be Giants released was basically a flexi-disc. They call it the Wiggle Diskette, early demos in 84. Uh, and, well, let me just make sure I'm saying it right, 85. March 30th, 85, they released the Wiggle Diskette, which is just a few songs. And apparently they didn't do the drum machine on it. This guy Chris Butler did, and he must have, I don't know, I'm, I'm fuzzy on the details here because that's all it says. But maybe he mentioned that, you know, the waitresses or something were, I don't know if they did a cylinder recording. Um, I don't have the full story on that. Um, but that's kind of interesting because usually they pretty much do everything in-house. You know, they're doing the drum machine. Even today when there's stuff with drum machine, because when I talk to Marty Beller, the drummer, when there's drum machine stuff on the albums, it's it's done by the Johns. It'll basically be like if they demo something with a drum machine and the band ends up deciding that that's the best way to go is to keep the drum machine, it's done by Flansburg or Linnell. Waitresses are awesome, but I don't know if you know them. I don't know them. Are they? What, what kind of music is it? It's, I guess you would call it New Wave. It's like early 80s post-punk nice. stuff. They have a great Christmas song. One, yeah? <laughs> one, of the, one of the few great Christmas songs that, 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 that isn't ruined. Yeah, seriously. I have to do Christmas programs every year. Every Christmas song is ruined for me because I have to hear it a billion times. They have a song, yeah, I Know What Boys Like, I think, was their was their hit. Oh, um, okay. All right. Another little tidbit in the trivia here. It says, this is the only wax cylinder recording ever released on a proper studio album by anybody, I guess. I mean, I'm not sure I what guess. the... Because the, back in the day... Back when it was the thing, I mean, they were released on records. I, I don't know. That seems like a little like gray. Area I guess there. if you're talking like an album as like a a, a, comp, a a compilation of freshly recorded and written songs, maybe that's true. Yeah. But yeah. obviously, yeah. there's plenty of the old wax cylinders have been compiled into reissues on CD. Yeah. So I guess yeah, maybe it does mean in terms of. 
something that was intended as a album and not a collection. I guess I would believe that. Yeah. So you know they did other recordings on the Wax Cylinder stuff, right? I didn't. Yeah, they did a, a session that their song called the Edison Museum, uh, okay. which ended up on No, right? Yeah. Um, and they did a wax cylinder version of James K. Polk, and they okay. did a song called Maybe, Maybe I Know. Okay. All right. So, yeah, cool. So, people can check that out on the wiki if you search on the wiki wax cylinder recordings. It has a thing all about the wax cylinder and about the recording sessions. Oh, yeah. I'm, so, just, I'm skim, skimming through this. So, the, that bass player was from Joe Jackson's band. That's, that's yeah. exciting. Mm hmm. Yeah, I mentioned that on some other episode. It's all a blur, man. This okay. is the 41st episode I've recorded. <laughs> I guess it's also worth mentioning, in, to go back to the tuba versus the double bass, that there's uh-huh. the reason um, that if you listen to like very early jazz recordings from, from New, like the New Orleans era, uh, King Oliver and before, they have tuba as the bass instrument, not upright bass, because it, um, uh, in part because it um, cut through better on the recording uh-huh. technology of the time. Um, and, 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 and it wasn't until, you know, the Chicago, uh, the Chicago style stuff that the, the double bass start became the, the predominant bass instrument. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Then, you know, mm-hmm. move into the four beat instead of the two beat. Anyway, that's just an asterisk. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's cool. I do some early jazz stuff with my kids. I, th- I think kids do find history stuff cool if you can link it in lineage to like stuff they are already interested in. I taught a jazz history class at, I taught a jazz history class at Bard a few years ago and it was, it was packed full of people because like the, because there's this, you know, it was right after the Kendrick Lamar record came out that had Thundercat and had Kamasi Washington and all those that like LA jazz scene. And so yeah. there's this renewed, and that band Bad Bad Not Good, I think they're called. It was just a sort of like renewed hip hop adjacent interest in, in in jazz. Well, there was also Bowie's last proper album, but that's uh, not Black why Star. Were, that's not why these kids were interested. Right? No, 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 no. They to talk but about did you hear Bowie's Bowie's last record? His backing band was a it's jazz. Fucking amazing! Yeah, it's awesome. I used to go. That's the band that's based on. Um, I used to go see that big band. At a, at a club in the West Village when I was in in college, like, like now I'm blanking on what the name of it was, but those those guys, they're great. Yeah, yeah, they're amazing. Uh, okay, so um, yes, we both agree this is a great song. But if you were going to score this uh, in the the pantheon of they might be giant songs, where where would you put this one to ten? What do you think? I mean, for me, it's an eight. Yeah, I really think it's like it's it's. You know, it's not the first one I would play for someone who had never heard the band before, but it's like right. it's it's perfectly executed. Yeah, conceptually, like no, conceptually, <laughs> lyrically, performance. Like, there's nothing I would change about it. Yeah, yeah, it is like from from start to finish. Yeah, just from them. Apparently, she wants to be on the episode. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Zinni is making a second appearance. She was on the Doctor Worm episode there. Yes. Okay. Um, yeah, conceptually, from them, you know, deciding, I mean, basically, they must have wrote this song with the intent of recording it at the Edison Museum. Like, I'm, I'm guessing it, maybe Flansburg wrote it um, after they had already booked the, you know, maybe, like, figured out that they could go and do this recording with them yeah, at the Edison Laboratory. I mean, yeah, that's, one of the, right? that's one of the impressive things about them is, like, 
there's this versatility without sort of soulless shape shifting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I don't. I forget if I yeah. said this. You know, but I think about like the kind of thing. You know, like some kind of thing like Stephen Merritt, for example, might write something like New York City or like this as an exercise and then reject its right. sincerity. But right. they give the impression of like fully inhabiting each of these, each of the stylistic experiments in a way that, that I'm impressed with. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Oh boy, what am I going to give it? Um, I mean, I don't know, maybe eight seems about right. Because, yeah, there's so many things to take into consideration. Like, if I was making a longer playlist for myself, or e- even to demonstrate to other people, like, the the breadth of the stuff that They Might Be Giants have done, it would probably go on there. But if I were making, like, just, like, a 30-minute mix of They Might Be Giants stuff, it probably wouldn't be on there. Mm-hmm. Um, I Yeah, I think... I think I'm gonna go. I think I'm gonna go. Uh, I've always been really fond of this song. I'm gonna go eight point two. Hey, hey, hey! Yeah, take that. <laughs> it's a great song. Okay, so yeah, you you got to get going, and my baby's getting fussy here. So I, I guess to make up for the great length of your first episode, we'll uh, wrap this one in under an hour. Whoa! There you go. <laughs> yeah, people are gonna be like, "What, man? Come on." You're, you're shortchanging me on all this free content. <laughs> so uh, thanks again for being on, and uh, thanks for picking this song. Ag- again, it's another good one um, that, the, you know, the guest, I think, matched perfectly to this because you are very, you know, you've taught classes and you're very well-versed in music history, and this one definitely has a lot of historical elements in it. So, so thanks again, man. Yeah, of course. Please join us on Twitter at This Might Be a Pod, Facebook.com slash This Might Be a Podcast. Email me, This Might Be a Pod at Gmail, and you can leave voicemails at 224 801 2930. If you really like what you're hearing and you want to support the pod, please visit us at Patreon.com slash This Might Be a Podcast to uh, donate and get some exclusive content and some merch. Thanks again for listening, everybody. I can hear you, just barely hear you. I can just barely hear you.